0: it was very much tied to, no, don't move in together before you get married, which is tied to don't date before you get married, which is ultimately tied to don't have sex before you get married.
1: So. Don't date before you get married? How do you ever find someone to get married <laughs> to if you don't date then?
0: Oh, Emily, I'm glad you asked. Well, in my day <laughs> in the Christian church, it was very much about kissing dating goodbye, as it oh, were. Oh, yeah, I forgot
1: oh, yeah. about that. Book. Yeah. I was about to... Yeah, label that book a certain adjective, but I didn't. Okay.
0: Well, it's okay. We probably all know what that adjective might be. Yeah. We can all imagine it together in our minds. Mm-hmm. No, it was much more a model that was supposed to be about going back to the old timey model of like courtship, you know. Cool. It was real cool and didn't mess up anybody at all. It was a good <laughs> happy ending to the story.
1: <laughs> Dedeker's lying everyone very much.
0: <laughs>
2: On this episode of the Multi Emery Podcast, we're going to be talking about denesting without de-escalating a relationship. So often when a couple chooses not to live together anymore, or denest as we're calling it, it's assumed that they're also breaking up. However, the decision to stay together but still live apart is becoming more prevalent in both monogamy and in non-monogamy in the U.S. and Europe especially. This is becoming more and more common. So today, we're going to talk about some of the reasons why people choose to stay together while living apart. And then, in the second half, we're going to have a very special panel discussion with some of our patrons of the show who have personal experience with denesting while still staying in an intimate, close relationship with their partner.
1: Yay! Well, welcome back, everyone. It is the first episode of the new year. We have all gone through the holidays. We are now in 2022. Oh my goodness, what, what a concept. <laughs> what what will all those twos bring? I don't know, that's a great question. The Winter Olympics in a couple months, which I can't wait for, but yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah,
0: this is an interesting topic. I, I think that, like Jace pointed out in the intro, this is still so relatively unheard of to so many people. I think that the idea of moving in together is so tied to the relationship escalator. It's Mm -hmm. so tied to this is a definite marker of things are progressing in a particular direction. Things are getting serious. And the idea of undoing that, it's just unfathomable for most people to think about still staying in a relationship even while unknitting some kind of intentional entanglement.
1: I always think of your brother Jace and what Mm. he said, if you want to yeah,
2: reiterate that again. Well, yeah, just some number of years ago he had moved in or rather, a girlfriend had moved in with him, sort of out of just practical necessity for financial reasons at the time. And then, you know, after they'd been doing that for a while and they were ready to find a new place, there was kind of this thing of like, well, you know, 'Cause I, I think I said something to him about, oh well you guys could each, you know, get your own place after that if mm-hmm. you weren't sure that you wanted to live together or, or live together yet. And he's like, mm, no, like if, if we don't keep living together, that means we break up. And that was yeah. just a very clear and I'm like, Yeah, of course. That's exactly how I would have thought. That's how most people would think. That's totally normal, I guess. But more and more it's not. And that's what we're that's what we're discovering, and that's what we're talking about in this episode. And
1: we use the term nest because I think a lot of people in the non-monogamous community say like nesting partner. And so it's this idea of denesting and, and that nesting partner is the person that you live with or the people that you live with, perhaps. But then to denest is to leave that arrangement that you may have with another person or with a few other people and maybe choose to live alone or choose to do some other sort of configuration. So we're going to talk about that today. To start off with, it's the new year. And so maybe that means that you just went through a breakup because there are a lot of statistics out there that people tend to break up in the new year or around the holidays. I've I've been there. Yep. And so it was 2011. That was me. Oh, really? Literally
0: January 1st, 2011.
1: (laughs) There you go. That you broke up with someone or that you were... Okay,
0: I broke up with the person. It was the first person I ever cohabited
1: with. Oh goodness. as part of wow. a romantic relationship. Yep. Yeah, I, yep. and I feel like, Jayce, you said that you've had some January breakups too.
2: Yeah, sometime within January, February. Is, that's when I kind of associate with breakup season. Mm-hmm. It's like the time between New Year's and Valentine's Day.
1: Yeah, that definitely is. A breakup season. However, there is a cosmopolitan article that suggests that breakups tend to happen before big events. So the reasoning behind that might be because somebody doesn't want to meet a family member, like they don't want to bring this person to meet family because, oh, maybe they're not really someone that I want to associate my family with, or you may have to engage in things like gift giving, and that's sort of a really intimate thing. They may not want to have a significant other be a part of that. And they're like, uh, oh, maybe that's telling. Maybe we should break up. There is a day statistically, which is the largest breakup day, the most prevalent, and it's December 11th. So <laughs> we've all gotten past that now. Good job. But perhaps, <laughs> yeah. perhaps you did get broken up with on that day. I don't know. Dear, dear listener out there. So yeah, I mean, all of us have gone through something like this in the past and and then yeah before valentine's day as well that tends to be a big breakup day however this episode is not about that we're talking instead about staying together but choosing to live apart and so the first part of this episode is going to be about some of the reasons why people want to do that some of the benefits perhaps of that and sort of the prevalence that it's taken on in our society and in, like jason dedeker said before like in europe This seems to be like a really big trend that's happening over there. And then after the break, after our ad break, we're going to be talking to some of our patrons about the non-monogamy side of this and the fact that they may have lived with a partner and then decided to move away from that partner and live on their own, which I think is something that's not particularly well studied yet, but perhaps will be eventually because... Like we've said, you don't necessarily need to break up with a partner if you decide to not cohabit with them anymore, which is cool. I think that's a great idea that you can, you know, choose to do whatever the heck you want, whatever's best for you in your relationship.
2: Yeah. So to start out, let's just first talk about one other change that kind of predates this one. And that's the prevalence of couples who live together without being married. Just even one generation ago, that was this wild, very edgy thing to do. And now it just, everybody I know, that's just totally normal. No one even thinks twice about it. So this comes from Pew Research in an article of theirs called Marriage and Cohabitation in the US and mentioned some things such as within adults 18 to 44, the percent who have ever lived with someone and not been married to them is 59%. So quite a lot. And that is even greater than the share who has been married. So more people have lived together with someone they're not married to than have been married at all. So wow, that's really kind of interesting. really interesting.
0: Yeah, really tipped tipped the needle there.
2: Yeah. Right. In in the age range 18 to 44, right? I, I imagine this would be very different in older age groups, of course. And again, I think that's very different than
1: how it used to be because a lot of people would choose to get married and live together and leave the house for the very first time, like leave the house in which they grew up when they get married and when they go to this other place in which to cohabit. And so again, like you said, that's very, very different. People might have roommates now or people might live with their significant other well before they ever decide to get married.
2: Yeah. So then another interesting part of that is that the motivations for why they would nest or why they would live together between married and unmarried couples were different. So in this study, they found that Most of the people who were married and living together, when asked for the reasons why, would say things like love and companionship as major reasons they decided to move in together. A small percentage of those who, again, were married and living together also cited finances or convenience. But amongst the people who were not married to each other, but living together, a much higher percentage, 38%, said moving in with their partner made sense financially, and 37% said it was convenient. So that seems to be the the finance and convenience seems to be a higher priority thing. And that kind of makes sense with what we've seen happen with housing prices and apartment prices and things yeah. like that. And with people getting married later, that you kind of add all those things together. And it's like, well, it just just kind of makes sense.
0: Some of these trends might indicate that maybe more people are separating out the decision to get married versus the decision to nest. But it is still the case that about 66% of married adults who lived with their spouse before they were married and also who weren't even engaged to be married when they moved in together, say that they saw specifically cohabitation as a step toward marriage when they first started living with the person who they ended up getting married to. Which I suppose can make sense, you know, regardless of of the way that our human brains work, it's a little bit of an ad hoc situation. But also it makes sense that just from a social perspective, that's kind of the escalator that we're all trained to be on. Yeah, currently that you know living together, cohabiting, and marriage either happen in close succession or sometimes simultaneously.
2: But the escalators going strong is what we're yeah. saying. Real yes, strong. still there. Real
0: strong, successful escalator. <laughs> Maybe successful is going a little too far, but strong, a strong escalator. Mm. Mm-hmm. So again, this confirms that you know most people who get married still view nesting specifically as part of that traditional relationship escalator. About half of U.S. adults say that couples who live together before marriage have a better chance of having a successful marriage than those who don't live together before marriage. And then 63% of adults who are younger than 30 say that couples who live together before marriage have a better chance of having a successful marriage compared with 52% of people ages 30 to 49, 42% of people ages 50 to 64, 37% of those 65 and older. So there's definitely a generational difference here. And now what is interesting is that when I was growing up, in the Evangelical Christian Church, they often whipped out statistics, God knows from where. <laughs> um, yes. They made them up. They could very well have made them up. That kind of said the opposite of this. Huh. That we're like, Oh, they studied people who lived together before marriage and they found that, oh no, living together before marriage, it was real bad. It was real bad for their marriages. Their marriages Why? didn't last as long. Why? I don't know. Would maybe that those are legitimate statistics. I'd have to follow up on that, but... It was very much tied to no, don't move in together before you get married, which is tied to don't date before you get married, which is ultimately tied to don't have sex before you get married.
1: So don't date before you get married. How do you ever find someone to get married <laughs> to if you don't date then?
0: Oh, Emily, I'm glad you asked. Well, in my day <laughs> in the Christian church, it was very much about kissing, dating goodbye as it oh, were. Oh, yeah. I
1: forgot oh, about yeah. that. Book. yeah i was about to yeah label that book a certain adjective but i didn't okay
0: well it's okay we probably all know what that adjective might be yeah. we can all imagine it together in our minds mm-hmm. no it was much more a model that it was supposed to be about going back to the old-timey model of like courtship you cool. know it was real cool and didn't mess up anybody at all it was a good <laughs> happy ending to the story
2: <laughs> dedicated lying everyone very much <laughs> i did just want to say real quick this isn't just coming from people's anecdotal evidence in the church or whatever. There have been a number of studies showing a link between living together before marriage and higher rates of divorce. There have also been a lot of other researchers contradicting those results or doing other studies showing that, that that's not true or that the opposite is true or that it's changed over time. It's, it turns out, as I've looked into this a little bit, that it's very hotly debated as it hmm. turns out. Hmm. And I could imagine there's a lot of motivations on either side for, for coming out with a particular outcome from this. But but anyway, that, that wasn't based on nothing. However, it does seem like more and more researchers are kind of saying, mm, actually, we're not so sure that that's true. So it's interesting that in this study, it showed that people's perceptions of it is that it will make the marriage better. Yeah, I'm- And of course, I do think it's worth mentioning the caveat that A good marriage doesn't just mean a marriage that doesn't get divorced. So that's another thing to keep in mind here. Very good point. Even if there is a correlation with divorce, that doesn't mean necessarily better relationships.
1: Yes. I think people just regardless of what kind of configuration they're in, if they choose to like be cohabiting partners before they get married or not, they may break up
0: just connecting to human maybe beings not. at all yeah exactly there's like, a chance you're gonna not like them after a period of time yeah,
2: <laughs> totally <laughs> yeah
1: all right so that was discussing people choosing to cohabit without being married and that it is pretty prevalent in our society but it's also pretty common for people in intimate relationships to choose not to nest with one another so, this is a quote from Why More Couples Are Choosing to Live Apart, which was published in The Conversation in 2020 by Simon Duncan, oh. Professor Emeritus of Social Policy at the University of Bradford. He said, Surveys have previously suggested that around 10% of adults in Western Europe, the US, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia live apart together, which is a LAT. You're going to hear that a lot in this episode, LAT, living apart together. Well, up to a quarter of people in Britain statistically defined as single actually have an intimate partner. They just live somewhere else. So ten percent. That's that's a lot. That's a quite good a lot of people. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and this very same Simon Duncan, Professor Emeritus, was also part of an additional study with Miranda Phillips, Julia Carter, Sasha Rosenil, Maria Stoilova called Practices, and Perceptions of Living Apart Together, which was published in Family Science in 2014. So for this particular study, they did a survey of people's lats. Oh, how <laughs> jacked they were. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, they did a survey of people in lat relationships, living apart together in Great Britain, specifically England, Wales, and Scotland in 2011. And they supplemented this with 50 semi-structured qualitative interviews that lasted about one hour that they did in that same year. So basically what qualitative means is they just kind of chatted with them. And then the actual analysis of it is looking at what did they say, trying to distill that down. It's a lot more labor intensive because you're not just like checking one to five. How much do you agree that your lats are great? So then, <laughs>
0: five. Very good. <laughs>
2: five. Very good. Strongly agree. Lats are great.
0: Strongly agree. Lats are strong.
2: Yes. <laughs> so... Basically, within this, of all the questions that they answered, the question that they used in this study to define people as a lat person was asking those who were not married, cohabiting, or in a same-sex civil partnership, are you currently in a relationship with someone you're not living with? So basically, if they had already said that they were not married or in a domestic partnership or something like that, they would say, are you in a relationship with someone you're not living with? And if the answer was yes, they categorized them as someone who's part of a LAT.
0: So these are the things that they found. They found that most LATs live near one another. However, it did include some people who are in long-distance relationships with about 17% living over 50 miles away. 68% of the respondents saw each other several times a week. 21% saw each other every day. Only 16% saw their partner less than once a week. And they found that the closer that partners live to one another, the more frequently they saw each other, which just makes logical sense. Yes. Yes. (laughs) A third of couples preferred specifically to live apart, largely because of feeling obligations to family or their children or because of prior relationship baggage. Overall, the survey and the interview data suggest that the idea of monogamous and committed coupledom is usually just as strong for most LATs as assumed for co-residential couples, and most like to see their relationship in this way, even those particularly valuing autonomy early in their relationship or who are worried about cohabitation. So essentially, making the case that I guess needs to be made still in 2022 that Yeah, people who live apart but are still together are just as committed to each other. Mm -hmm. And if we're talking about monogamy specifically, in theory, just as monogamous with each other. That just because they're choosing not to cohabit doesn't mean the relationship is less serious, less entangled, less committed. And then here's another quote. Indeed, 20% of actual LATs would ideally like to be married and living with their potential spouse and another 12% in unmarried cohabitation. This presumably reflects the fact that many either are constrained from living together or see lat as an early stage. So that's kind of the opposite side of the coin of that there's still a significant chunk of people who, even though they're living apart together, would prefer not to be. They would prefer to someday get married, move in together, or if not getting married, to still move in together. And they see this as just an early stage in the relationship.
2: Yeah, but that's a lower percentage than I would have expected. That's true.
1: But yes, I believe that some of the people that they talked to were in earlier stages of their relationship, and they cited living apart just because oh they weren't ready to move in together, essentially, which
2: makes sense. Right, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But but they, clearly, they weren't like specifically looking at long term living apart together relationships or anything in this one.
1: Not specifically, no. However. That does exist, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the benefits of living apart while in an intimate relationship, choosing to do that even though you also choose to not potentially live together. So, why might some people not want to live together but still maintain a long-term relationship or marriage? This is from a New York Times 2020 article. I also find it really interesting that a lot of these articles are so recent, that they're yeah. all from like 2020. And I, I was like, wow, the, you know, the world really in so many ways was sh- sort of shifting around that time. And mm-hmm. we know people who chose to live together just because of necessity or because, okay, we're not going to be able to see each other potentially because of the pandemic, stuff like that. But yeah, they clearly were looking at people choosing to live apart during this time as well.
0: Yeah, well, clearly, I mean, with the pandemic and suddenly everyone's forced to be at home all the time, it really shakes up your sense of who do I actually want in my home.
1: Oh, yeah. And for some
0: people, it was really driving home. I want someone in my home with me. And for some people, it was really driving home. I don't want anybody around.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And this actually was the byline of this is coronavirus. Some couples reconsider living apart. So this is called Mm. married but living far apart. And the article profiled a group of couples that choose to live apart largely because of their careers. Many of them talk about intentional intimacy they experience when they get the chance to see each other in person, but most of them still have the goal to eventually live together. But I found this to be a really interesting quote and something to kind of think about if you're, you know, potentially wanting to do this with a significant other. The quote says, Being together just a few days a month means they still act like newlyweds, sitting on the same side of the table at a restaurant so they can hold hands. They would fly to each other's city for just one night if they can't spend the whole weekend. A flyby, they call it. They light Shabbat candles together on FaceTime and hide notes in each other's apartment. Such arrangements are a hall pass from constant companionship. There was a sociologist who said that. One participant in her study explained, "You get the independence of being single and the benefits of marriage." That's really interesting. Just this idea that, like, intimacy comes from, you know, the excitement of seeing this person that you're not always exposed to twenty four seven because you live with them.
0: Yeah, that's something that Esther Perel talks about quite a bit. That yeah. our sense of intimacy and excitement about someone is very much based in still being able to have space. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't necessarily have to translate, I need to live across town from you or on the other side of the country from you. But just finding ways to have that space, to be able to have both individuals getting access to that sense of independence in some way or another.
1: Totally.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is something that I think Dedeker and I, in the whole time that we've been together, while we've had times of living together, also have long periods, you know, longish periods of several months of living apart every year. and so. It is interesting getting kind of a little bit of a taste of that and a little bit of not right and I can definitely attest that it does help to kind of keep that i guess like intentionalness where it's yeah, I'm not I'm, just seeing you because you're happen to be on the couch where I want to watch TV you know it's <laughs> like I had to go out of my way, potentially even fly to another country to see you and so there there is something nice about that, even though there's also some frustrating things about truly long distance, right? It's not just like a quick drive across town. Mm -hmm. So to look back at that previous study that we were talking about, that one also looked into some of the reasons for why people may want to live apart. So this is a quote from that study, and that's, nearly all interview respondents saw at least some benefit in living apart because of the greater personal autonomy, space, and freedom it afforded. So I think that makes sense. I think we can all relate to kind of the the freedom and autonomy of having our own space. And then another quote says, many women interviewees described the advantages of increased personal autonomy in relationship to their male partners. And Mm -hmm. others felt that LAT allowed them to better prioritize commitments to children or elderly parents in these ways, living apart could make a relationship possible that would be threatened by too much close contact. I feel like there's a lot to unpack all in that. <laughs> in that yeah. Yeah. There, yeah, right? yeah. yeah, in terms of you know falling into gender roles even if you actively don't want to. I could see that yeah. certainly being oh, yeah. a part of it. As well as caring for family and things. And, that, and isn't that funny too? Because I remember that when my mom got married after my parents got divorced, when she got remarried, Talking to her later, you know, one of her motivations was, I wanted you and your brother to have someone else there, you know, to have like a father figure in the house and for us to, for you to have that, right? And it's interesting that in this, though, they're pointing out that there's people who it's exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, no, actually, I'm better going to be able to commit to my children by not trying to live with this person. So that's That's really interesting. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So basically one of the takeaways from this is that living apart together relationship is not always a stage in courtship or marriage or or specifically oh well we would if we could but we can't because there's circumstances right that there's also reasons people do it like that flexibility for individuals in how they want to conduct their relationships and that they can use that autonomy that lat offers to manage different needs and desires around emotional closeness and family commitments and things like we've been talking about, and that living apart together can be a way to subvert traditional gender roles in the home. So I I just love all of this. I, I wish that this study, or I wish that there were more studies looking at this more in depth, but looking at this more intentionally. And I think it is just a new enough thing and maybe still not quite common enough that people are jumping on to that. But it's all of this is really, really interesting.
0: Yeah, it, it is really intriguing. I think I've expressed this on the show a long time ago that I really do wish that I could magic wand us a world where there was just enough resources for everyone so that everyone mm. could have that experience of just re- really literally having their own space, whether that's their own apartment or house. Because or, I think I run into this so frequently. I have so many people, especially in the polyamorous community, who express having some kind of, essentially like a commune dream, almost mm. this idea <laughs> that I buy a big plot of land and I bring along all my partners and their families and metamores and stuff like that. But the important part of the dream that everyone seems to hold in common is everyone has their own tiny house.
3: Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's Which not we buy talk a big about old a house later. together.
0: Yeah. So it, there's definitely something, at least anecdotally, that I can see that people are craving that mix of, I want to have control of my own space, but I also want to feel safe and secure and be close to my partners and my community at the same time. Yeah. So... We're going to talk about specifically the prevalence of living apart together couples in LGBT communities. So this is all from the article, When Living Apart Keeps You Together, that was published in Curbed, also in 2020. So again, lat relationships have been long a feature of queer relationships, specifically. Sociologist Joseph Harry set out in 1975 in Detroit to research how committed relationships between gay men worked in comparison to heterosexual married couples. And I'm going to read this quote. Harry noted that gay partners who were able to live together did not seem to have relationships that lasted any longer than those who lived apart. In other words, living apart was not a barrier to the strength of these relationships, and in fact, may have been the reason they were able to last in spite of social oppression and the financial strain of maintaining two households. And then I'm going to jump to this other quote. It's hard to say how far back the practice of living apart together goes, since LGBTQ people have existed forever, yet have historically been erased from formal studies. But we do know, as Harry's study notes, that at least by the 1970s, separate residence relationships were a workable adaptation to perceived pressures from the heterosexual community, which is a nice way of saying that when being a visibly together gay couple is at best not acceptable and at worst potentially life-threatening, building a stable relationship around separate homes is essential, which just, you know, again, makes sense. That when visually moving in together is just going to cause too much suspicion you got to find ways to still have a stable relationship, even though you don't have that option on the table.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, again, find it interesting that they said here and reiterated that the relationship is not necessarily going to last longer or, you know, seemingly be better just because a couple chooses to live together versus living apart. So it's yeah. reiterating that sentiment there. So just some additional things to consider here. The previous article that Dedeker just spoke of, it pointed out how financially privileged people must be in order to live apart, especially now when, you know, it just, the housing market is really nuts. And I, I live in Los Angeles. Getting a studio is probably even out of the question for me at this point. It's just a, a challenging thing to even be able to do that. So I think a lot of people resort to living with roommates or even deciding because of those financial factors to live together with a significant other. But I think if you are able to, then maybe this is something to consider, but there are financial issues that are in play
2: when you're choosing to be two separate households as opposed to one. Something that I've noticed, though, in terms of this, particularly in bigger cities, right? You know, Mm -hmm. in more expensive cities, right? Like LA or Seattle or... New York or whatever, is that people will live with roommates, but not with their partner. Yeah. And that that's, I think that's something that these studies tend to not talk about, or at least I haven't come across many looking specifically at what is your living situation? You know, how much is this a privileged thing? How much is just because these people all want to live alone versus what I've witnessed a ton of, particularly in the non-monogamy world, but it's where i've finally found roommates that i get along well with and i can afford my place. Yeah, so i'm going to keep staying here. <laughs> and I like the relationship with you, but like you keep doing your thing, i'll keep doing mine, you know. Yeah, you get to
1: go home at the end of the, t- <laughs> exactly. at the end of the night or whatever, yeah, and i get right. to come back to my
2: space. Well, and also that sense of like i finally found a roommate situation that works for me. I don't want to lose that. Right. For whatever reason, whether that's financially or just good people you get along with, or hopefully both. But I've definitely noticed that to be a trend as well, which kind of, kind of flies in the face of that assumption that living apart means you can afford your own place.
1: Another article that we looked at, it talked about just the ideas that when you come into a home together, it tends to be set up in such a way that you have to or are supposed to live with your partner in one room together as opposed to you having your own room because there's this master bedroom and it's usually the biggest in the house and that is the place in which you and your partner have to share and and have to cohabit not only in the same house together but in the same room together because i know that i've lived with partners and roommates Uh, I mean, Jace, you and I did this, that we Mm -hmm. were in the master bedroom and it was huge. However, our roommates got their own room and we were in the same room. So I think that that's something also to maybe consider and flip on its head that again, if you have the means or are maybe in a situation where you can afford you know cheaper housing or something to be able to have your own space that is personal and separate from one another that that even makes a big Mm -hmm. difference as opposed to just like okay we get one room and that's it and we have to share it and that kind of sucks because you know you don't have to do that unless you're like a kid right like you share your room with your sibling or whatever but (laughs) when you grow up you're supposed to get your own room But then we come back into this situation where that's not the case anymore. So something we are going to talk about in the bonus is this slightly different approach, which Dedeker sort of spoke about, is this communal living thing, this co-housing community, which has become fairly prevalent now, which is basically made up of little private households with shared common spaces. So that's becoming a bigger thing now. There are some pros and cons to that, and we're going to talk about that more in the bonus. But before that, we are going to dive into the second part of this episode, which I'm really excited about. We're going to talk to some of our patrons about their relationships, about being nested for a while and then choosing to leave that situation and become denested, but still stay in an intimate partnership with you know, the people that they were involved with. And that's really cool. So I'm excited to get to talk to three of our patrons about that. And we are going to see you after the break to do that
4: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
2: For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's a, just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also
0: That's multi, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast, and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I.
1: Welcome back, everyone. We are so excited to have three of our wonderful patrons here to discuss denesting without de-escalating. We thought that perhaps it would be great to actually talk to people about this as opposed to just... You know, speaking about it sort of theoretically, because none of us have actually done this, but we do have people in our patron group who have done this. So, again, in the first half of the episode, we sort of just discussed what does nesting mean within the context of romantic partnerships. We had a lot of different studies, and most of those studies are sort of related to monogamous people. So, now we want to go to the non monogamous side of things, and that's what we're hoping to do with this panel discussion. So I would love it if our patrons would introduce themselves and kind of talk a little bit about what the denesting process looked like within the context of your relationship. So let's start with Kiana.
3: Hi, everyone out there. My name is Kiana. I am also one of the research assistants for the podcast. And I am so glad that Emily, Jace, and Dedeker are really open to doing this topic. I denested in mid-October of this year, so it's still pretty fresh. Although I've been having conversations about denesting with my former nesting partner since March. So it was a pretty long process of kind of negotiating and explaining that my desire to not live with him was not about wanting to break up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was simply a matter of really trying to reclaim a lot of the independence and self-sufficiency that I felt that I had lost over the course of the pandemic. And so before the pandemic, I had a lot of strategies around just taking care of myself, as I'm sure we all do. And some of those, actually quite a bit of those centered around just doing things on my own. And I felt, you know, always pretty independent and autonomous in terms of how I was able to navigate my life, navigate my polyamory, even while living with a partner. Uh, and I have been with this partner for nine years. We just celebrated our nine year anniversary. And so with the pandemic, being home all of the time. And then also in my case, I finished my doctorate in May of 2020. And so the entire trajectory of my life transformed very dramatically (laughs) in a way that I didn't quite anticipate. And so I felt just kind of professionally lost, personally lost, um, which I'm sure a lot of people went through as well. And so once I kind of got my bearings professionally and was able to get a job after I finished school, I realized that I was still really grappling with how to uh, restructure my life concretely to like reclaim some of that independence. And then the other thing that I just realized and my former nesting partner, I do think he's one of the greatest people in the world. He was really compassionate around a lot of the gendered complaints and critiques that I brought up in terms of our nesting situation. Hmm. And so he's in tech. He's always made a lot more money than I have. I'm in the humanities and academia, so I make pennies. (laughs) (laughs) And I've always felt the need to uh, compensate for that difference by taking on more of the domestic uh, work. Hmm. And I think that feeling just kind of was exacerbated over the course of the pandemic because we were both home all the time. And I realized that I just had a lot of resentment around The way that society values different kinds of labor. And for a while, I was afraid to bring this up to my partner because I didn't know how to express that my resentment wasn't towards him, but it was towards like, all of this whole setup. And so once we were able to have conversations about that, he was open to it. And now it's been great. You know, I live down the street, quite literally down the street from him, Hmm. which works because we also have a dog that we co-parent so we rotate the dog between apartments and now that I've moved out he stayed in in our apartment that we were living in for 5 years and his other partner moved in with him so now they have mm-hmm. the experience to figure out what nesting looks like for them and you know it's odd because i think in terms of my polyamory nesting denesting has really highlighted how I always feel like I live at this weird intersection of being formally married, but having very solo poly leanings. Mm-hmm. Um, and nesting has just given me the space to kind of live in that contradiction and be okay with that. Because I feel a little embarrassed kind of saying, oh, I, I feel solo poly, but I'm married um, and trying not to kind of not stay in my lane, so to speak. So that's kind of my story in a nutshell.
1: Yeah, that sounds very intentional. And like you took a lot of time to kind of get to this place that you're at now, which is really cool. I'm interested to kind of hear more about the logistical stuff behind all of that. But I do want to move on to our other two panelists. So Jesse, how about you go next?
5: Sure. I just discussing with my anchor partner recently how I very strongly identify as polyamorous. And he's more of the like, Dr. Kim Talbert type of like, mm-hmm. I just see relations differently. I just see relationships and dynamics differently. So he's the person that I denested from, and we've known each other for almost four years at this point and were apart for a little while. And so, March of 2020, <laughs> we had like just gotten back together, like right before the pandemic started. And so I packed for a week. And was wearing the same clothes for five months (laughs) Um, and ended up going, he was in upstate New York. And so I was a couple hours, it was four or five hours away. And so I went up and ended up sort of like, just like a little bit of living with him for a little bit. And then ultimately the end of last year decided to quit my job and nest with him more permanently. Mm. And it was like partially because of the pandemic and transition so we like ended up nesting together for a little bit over a year total. And I moved out in June of this year. And part of it was that we didn't intentionally move in together. And so I didn't want that to be how we nested. I was like, this was great. for." It was like sort of like a micro. Like <laughs> It was like, we got to see what this was like. We see what works. We see what doesn't work. We know what our growing pains are, what we need to work on. But we're in pretty different life stages overall, too. So he's a little bit more established in what he's doing. I'm still trying to figure out my own stuff. And so to me, it felt like I needed space to be elsewhere and sort of figure more things out for myself. And that, like, I do hope we do live together again at some point in the future, but wanted to, like, go into nesting together more intentionally than pandemic-wise. And then also I live with someone who I call my primary platonic and she calls me her friend, but not in like a, <laughs> it's, it's a consensual and she knows it's a joke. And like, she's just has been my best friend for 20 years. And so part of my poly has always been prioritizing platonic dynamics. And that's always been a critical part of decentering romantic relationships. And she was coming here for grad school and I had sort of like said like, yeah, I'd love to move out there f- with you. And so for me, it was also partially like, I was loving living with him and I like could have, we could have had conversations to continue it, but I was like, I'm going to go with my platonic relationship that I committed to being with. Um, so that's sort of how my process. Went.
1: I love that. Yeah. I think so many people don't tend to prioritize their friends on the same kind of trajectory that they do their romantic relationships and to be able to do that with a friend and choose to like live with them as opposed to, oh, I'm romantically with someone, so that means I have to live with them. That's really cool, and that's excellent that you're doing that. Very fun. Kedavan, you're next.
6: Hi, yeah, I'm Kedavon. Um I also sort of feel like a imposter solo poly person because I am also married, but don't act like any polyamorous married person I know. Um, so my husband and I have been together for over 10 years. And yeah, like initially, I won't lie, we opened up like a year or two into our relationship and it was very hierarchical. But over the years, we just sort of like, let go of a lot of expectations and and just sort of naturally changed our dynamic as needed. And basically that's what led to our denesting, which actually kind of happened... <laughs> accidentally. Um, So kind of in the middle of the pandemic, he had been working from a a co-working space across our street, but then that shut down. So he was working from home like everyone else had been. (laughs) And he realized how horrible that was. Um, And at the sort of similar timing, his other partner who lives 10 minutes away, her partner had moved out and she had an office like in her apartment. He had been struggling with lots of different things. And I just said, why don't you just go stay with her? Like, use her office, be able to close the door, make it easier on yourself. Like, it won't be a big deal. And that was about a year and a half ago. (laughs) And he basically has been living there pretty much full time ever since. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to lie. When I first suggested it, I genuinely imagined it as like a three-month thing <laughs> but then pretty much immediately we were like oh this is nice like we each have our space you have your office and of course in the first part of the pandemic like they hadn't been able to spend much time together so it was really nice for them to be able to reconnect and they were really enjoying it and like enjoying their nesting sort of process and we sort of just kind of kept it as is and then basically my partner, we kind of got into this like joke argument where I sort of just said, like, won't it be fun to pick out sheets when we're living together? Like genuinely thinking like two years from now. And he kind of freaked out and was like, oh, like, I'm not ready to live together. And I'm like, no, it's fine. Neither am I. Like, well, yes, no worries. And then he like was like, I think I want to try living together for short periods to see if I'll be ready. And then basically that was in July. And in November, he said, I'm ready to move in full time with you. <laughs> so so then I kind of just, you know, sat with that and was like, yeah, like that feels right. You know, I had had my like year of solonest in my apartment and <laughs> I don't actually like it that much. It's mm-hmm. nice. I enjoy my alone time, but I definitely like nesting with someone. And he was someone I already envisioned nesting with, maybe not as quickly as as this particular timeline worked out, but here we are.
1: I feel like I see the pandemic as a common theme (laughs) and thread through everyone that just spoke, uh, which is really interesting. I mean, it has obviously created this huge upheaval in all of our lives and perhaps prompted all of us to reassess sort of where we are in terms of living with someone or not living with someone or choosing to live with other people perhaps, and trying something out different. I really love that idea. That's very, very cool. Okay, so just in terms of the denesting and in terms of sort of choosing to live your life maybe with someone else or alone, what were some of the emotional or the sort of logistical and practical challenges that you faced? What were some of the things that you had to navigate through? Yeah, how did that all work out?
3: I think in terms of the emotional challenges, for me, it was finding the language mm. to express to my partner that I don't want to break up, and I still love you, and I love our relationship. I just don't want to live with you, and I don't want to live with anybody. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, you know, another partner of mine who is very wise and good with words, um, and actually also went through denesting as well with one of his partners, um, he explained to me to say that it's not that you don't want to live with this person specifically. It's just that you don't want to live with anyone <laughs> at all. <laughs> and so um, framing that was, was really helpful. And I think at this point in my life, one of the things that I've come to really appreciate about being able to live alone is that my apartment has become a kind of concrete manifestation of the emotional project of trying to become my own home base. Like Mm. emotional secure base for myself. And so I've noticed now that even when I'm home, just chilling sometimes with my dog, when I feel a little anxious about things happening in my polycule, I kind of look around and that anxiety is quelled because Mm. it's just confirmation that I've set up a safe place for myself and I'm all right. And so that's been something that has been really transformative for me in my polyamory And then I think in terms of the practical logistics, I mean, I was ranting about this on Twitter, but I actually got denied for my first apartment that I applied for because I didn't apply with my husband, but we're listed on our taxes together. And so although I met all of the income requirements and the credit requirements, I still didn't get the apartment. And I asked the realtor or the broker why that was. And he said, I think it's because they have some confusion around why you're not moving in with your partner and you know, just maybe some negative associations with like, if you're separating, because that's what he asked me. Mm. And so I just thought that that was a really kind of potent example of just a lot of the gender politics that go into women wanting to live alone, uh, and how there are so many barriers that you have to kind of supersede in order to, to do that. And then, like I said, you know, we have a dog. So just figuring that out has been relatively easy. But now I don't have anyone to take care of plants anymore. My partner used to do that. So I do miss that a little bit.
5: <laughs> I love how different all three of our stories are because I feel like they add so much. I'm someone who, like, very cognizant of the intellectual-emotional disconnect of, like, okay, I know I just can't get my emotions to meet up here, but I mm. was I definitely struggled especially, like, I feel like the pandemic for so many people was a time to be, like, processing (laughs) traumas. And so I had deeply been processing things in that time where I was nesting. And then as I was moving towards leaving, I found that I was, like, very emotional about the process and needed a lot more reassurance than I previously had ever needed. Part of it was even, like, me asking for terminology. I knew he didn't like the term primary partner and hierarchy, so we were trying to figure out like how do we show that we're not deescalating our relationship, but that we are choosing to not live together anymore? And so we figured out like methods of checking in with each other and like time and I asked for making sure we know like the next time we're going to see each other. And then I've also been just like trying to find times to like be with friends and support myself through those ways. I think the being with myself in my room like i just very much resonate with that like having my own space has been so huge and if i do nest again i realize like i definitely will want two bedrooms
1: Mm.
6: for me like the emotional impact was pretty minimal but i kind of ascribe that to the fact that we've been talking about some form of like non-nesting for at least five years um my husband works remotely And I kind of have a career that sort of might force me to live in different countries. And so we had been sort of discussing, you know, me living somewhere for a year or two on a contract and him coming for three months at a time and then staying with his other partner for three months at a time. And so these kinds of ideas had always been like in our relational conversations. So we had already sort of emotionally prepared ourselves for the idea that living apart wouldn't be. Anything other than a practical logistical thing, so that helped a lot, but then even as things were changing, we definitely still had some feelings, and I definitely like missed seeing him every day and things like that he He definitely felt like he was abandoning me mm. but you know he would say that, and I'm like, you didn't abandon me. I told you to go <laughs> like, literally, <laughs> so I am like, where do you-? I mean of course you know your feelings are valid and everything but once I framed it like that, he was like, Yeah, I guess you're right. Like, I'm not abandoning you, you know? So, yeah, we definitely had some feelings, but I think like the literal years of conversations we've had about this and sort of imagining it all sorts of different ways and like for all sorts of different reasons and with all sorts of different configurations of partners just made it so easy to sort of transition once the right situation presented itself. And that helped a lot. And that's true of literally anything I've ever done in polyamory. Like I talk things to death before doing them. And then I'm like, oh, that was kind (laughs) of easy. (laughs) And then practically speaking, since I'm still in the middle of it, things I'm thinking about right now are like literally like, we're still not actually like switched all the stuff out of each apartment. (laughs) Mm. So we're still in the like literally moving phase. But then like even beyond that long term, my new nesting partner and I have to find a two bedroom apartment and that's going to be a whole process. and then. At the same time, my husband and I still want to buy not a home in our city because that's incredibly unrealistically financially, but sort of an apartment that a friend of ours told us about and we kind of fell in love with it six months ago and it's it's we really want to buy it and so that on top of like all the moving and everything is sort of a very big logistical challenge and so since we're talking about buying property and things like that, like we've been talking more and more about like finances because. Essentially, our whole relationship, my husband's and I finances have been 100% intertwined. Mm. And I've learned it's very rare for more egalitarian married couples. (laughs) We've just always found it very easy. We're very generous. Like, oh, you want to go on vacation with your partner? Like, that's fine. Like, there's never been this need to sort of like, separate so you can't say anything, you know, so... We've always just felt very comfortable doing it that way. And, and I have a very similar dynamic as Kiana did with her partner, like husband's in tech and I'm kind of in the, the helping profession. <laughs> so um, I'm the one that doesn't make a lot of money and um, kind of managing, like we're never going to be able to long-term continue to be a hundred percent entangled. That's just like not practical anymore. Trying to reimagine that like yeah. while also owning property together and Maintaining three separate households between five, four people. It's just kind of like a lot. And I just, I have not found any great examples out there of of our exact situation. So that's like a huge thing to continually discuss about. But that's been the most intimidating challenge, I think.
3: (laughs) We should swap notes, Ketaman, because (laughs) I'm I'm also trying to buy a building with my partner and his partner as well. And That's so exciting. I said, I'm fine to be under the same roof. I just don't mm. want to share a bedroom, mm. a kitchen, a bathroom. bathroom yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, as long as I could theoretically go 24 hours without seeing anybody, <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm fine to be under the same roof. So we're trying yeah. to buy like a multifamily home that has multiple apartments.
6: Wow. That's the dream, man. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's I, so cool. Yeah.
1: Wow. So, yeah, you kind of all answered this question in some ways, but. It seems as though you're potentially interested in living again with people, or moving back in with a partner, or you know, maybe moving in with a different partner, or maybe in the case of Kiana, not. Can you talk a little bit about that possibility?
6: The home that I was talking about with my husband—it's sort of like two and a half hours out of our, of our city, so it it's like close enough where you could live there full time and still like commute and stuff. But it's definitely like we're, we're buying it with the intention of it being like sort of a respite, like a vacation home. Mm. We're both like able to work him remotely 100% and me remotely, like a large portion of my work week can be remote. So we're just planning on sort of having that be our space. That's like for us. And then, of course, you know, anyone in the political that wants to like stay there. <laughs> um, but that's sort of our chance to sort of like still have a place that's ours. So, yeah, the, the idea is that like I don't think we're going to be living full time together. Probably for a while. I mean, that that can change just as easily. But the idea is that we definitely still want a space that's ours because we didn't dislike nesting together. <laughs> we just nest better with other people.
1: Mm.
5: I am definitely interested in like, re nesting with this same person. And I think that the experience of being with him for a year has helped us be like, oh, this would work, this wouldn't. Because of COVID, we weren't seeing as many of our, like, uh, other partners. And so I think thinking about extra space, like, I'm, I'm with Kiana, like, I would love, like, to not see someone for 24 hours. Like, I want my own kitchen. I want my own <laughs> bedroom. I want, like, a little, little, like, dome home for myself. That's just, <laughs> people can come in. I can see people. Maybe there's a garden. <laughs> that kind of vibe. So,
3: yeah, I think, you know, for me, I'm not, opposed to a very flexible definition of nesting, but what's central to what I need is always the ability to opt in and to opt out of everything, Mm. whether that be just having people in my space. Sometimes I don't want to see people. Sometimes I don't want to see metamores. Sometimes I don't, like, I just don't want to. I just want to be alone. And so being very kind but firm about that. And so that's why I suggested the multifamily option. But the other part of it is that I just think even with the best of male masculine partners, there's still this like gender division of labor. I feel Mm -hmm. that happens when you're living together that I am just have become a lot more aware of because of the pandemic. And I've been thinking about you know, my own role in that too. I will sometimes go to one of my other partner's apartments and like be cleaning things up. And then I stop myself and I'm like, I don't live here. Why am I doing <laughs> this? And so, in some ways, the living apart is really me trying to set my life up structurally to intervene into my own socialization mm. too but also just to make sure that in the event, you know, I decide to have kids with partners, there is more of an equitable division of labor that's baked into the structure. So I'm also very open to co-parenting, but not nesting and just figuring that out. And I think it might seem daunting to a lot of people, but people do it all the time. Like I grew up in a house with just my mom and, you know, I would visit my dad on the weekends. And obviously that's not an equitable division of labor, but I think the idea of co-parenting without living with people, people do that all the time. So just trying to, you know, pick and choose from different models that I've seen what I think might work for me and what might not. But like I said, I'm very open to being under the same roof with people as long as there are like subsequent roofs separating.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like all of you are sort of making it up as you go along and picking and choosing the things that you want to and then leaving the rest, which is really cool and awesome that We live in a day and age where that's becoming more acceptable and people are okay with that and hopefully moving towards brokers not denying you because you want to live alone, things like that. Also, yeah, we touched briefly on metamors, but how have your metamors and other partners seen this transition and have there been challenges with that or have they been like, this is awesome or, you know, how has that gone?
3: Well, since I live down the street, sometimes my metamor will come by for a drink Mm. and we just have some time together. So that's nice. And he's the one that I'm closest to out of, you know, my metamors. And I think he's, you know, enjoying the experience of living with our hinge partner. And also, I just appreciate how he feels more comfortable kind of having our relationship be a resource for him as he's navigating that change in his relationship. So that's really nice. And my other metamores are like women who also live alone and have denested. And so they're very much enthusiastic about it.
1: (laughs) Cool. Yeah. How about you too?
6: Well, for me, I'm pretty sure my metamore is loving it. (laughs) Mm. I mean, I think this is what she wanted. And, but my new nesting partner is obviously happy as well. And then my, I have another actual very long-term partner who's staunchly solo and never wants to live with a partner. So I kind of was like, look, I know he doesn't want to live with someone, but it still might kind of be like a bit of a shock to hear this. So I was just like, you know, like all cool and calm and checking in with him be like, hey, I just want to tell you something. Like, you know, I've been talking about potentially moving in um, with my partner. And I just wanted to like let you know. And he's just like, wait, you haven't been doing that for a year already? And I was like, no. And he's hmm. like, oh, I thought you were. <laughs> so like, I'm like, you thought we were planning to move in an entire year before we were actually planning on moving in? He's like, yeah, just, it kind of seemed like that's where you guys were at. I'm like, hmm. well, I guess you predicted that one. So he was weirdly very calm and predictive of that as well. Um
5: Almost all of our metamors are all long distance, so I think it has had a different, like it just like I haven't like really interacted with it very much. I've more had like my other partners be like, "Oh, does this mean like we could maybe nest with you someday?" Mm. And I'm like, "I don't know. The world is who knows. COVID could happen. (laughs) We could live together. (laughs) You never know."
1: Yeah, that's cool. Wow.
5: There's so much power in this conversation, specifically in that is that like we get to create the relationships that we want. So all Mm. three of us are expressing like, we're going to figure it out. We're doing this, we're doing that. And I think that that's where the power is of this thing that seemingly means you're deprioritizing a relationship or it's ending or it's not as good. doesn't have to be the case. And like, there's always room for communication about what the agreements are.
1: So if anyone out there is interested in maybe denesting without deescalating the relationship, what advice would you give to them because it sounds like all three of you are kind of pros at this point
2: <laughs>
5: <laughs> i think that the biggest advice i would give would be to spend some time with yourself writing down what your fears would be both in asking for it or in like receiving the information about it and trying to write down like what what the actual wants are and where you see it going because I think that if, if writing is a useful process I think that can be a really helpful way to go into the conversation and to be patient with yourself if it feels overwhelming at first mm-hmm. like I cried a lot the first few months it was really hard not to sleep next to him and I also feel so grateful for this experience and I think it's re-established my own sense of autonomy and strength and my own ability to be poly so It can it can be really worth it if it's the right choice. That's excellent.
6: Yeah, being like gentle with yourself at like all stages of the process, like even before you are officially thinking about it and even after you're denested, it's a big change. And you know, I I went into it thinking I would love kind of having the apartment to myself and then realizing like, oh, this isn't actually like my ideal scenario. And that was a surprise to me. So like even once you've done the thing you think you want it after all the journaling and all the the talking, like it's okay if that's not actually the ideal. And and so just sort of my advice would be to set up your life to allow for as many changes as possible in the beginning, because you might not have gotten the exact right fit the first time and and that's okay. So Mm. just keep making those little adjustments until, until you're in a place that works and then enjoy. And then in, five to 10 years, make your tweaks as needed, you know?
3: (laughs) Yeah, I would say lots of conversations (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, that really pull apart the nuts and bolts of nesting, what it means to you, what's working, what's not working. And also as just a thought experiment and do this a lot, Try to imagine the ways that denesting can actually improve your relationship, even if nothing is wrong. Just think about how could this actually make my relationship better? And I've discovered that now that I don't have the domestic interference in the relationship with my nesting partner, you know, that sense of like deep infatuation has returned. There's more of an eroticism now. Like, you know, my favorite thing now when he comes over, we have a drink, you know, we have sexy time. And then he leaves. And, it, <laughs> and I swoon when he leaves. And it's so great. And so I think really just thinking about the ways that this can strengthen your bond can allow for a little bit more courage in doing this really, really difficult thing that doesn't have a cultural script. And now, you know, I maybe I'm in my own NRE with the nesting at the moment, but mm-hmm. I feel very much just even more committed to my former nesting partner because it almost feels like our relationship is capable of transforming and adapting in these ways. And so it feels like invincible at this point. And so, yeah, just imagine for yourself the positives of what this could mean for your relationship, rather than succumbing to the cultural narrative that when you move out, that means you're breaking up.
1: That's all such great advice.
6: Yeah, definitely. Like you get to date the person (laughs) that you have been doing dishes with for like Mm. 10 years. Like, that's the thing that people are, you know, nesting partners are usually jealous of. They're like, oh, you get to go out and have fun with all your new partners. And then you talk about the bills with me. And it's like, well, now they're not the person you talk about the bills with. So it's just all fun and games, right? <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you all so much. This was a really, really compelling conversation. And I'm hoping that everyone out there who is thinking about this, who is interested in it, found something you know, to take away from this conversation. So we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. That was such an amazing conversation. I really appreciate all of our patrons for helping us out with this part of the episode because I know we were talking a lot about monogamous couples in the first part and most of the research out there that has been done is on monogamous couples. And so we got to hear the other side of that in non-monogamy and learn a lot of great things about denesting without de-escalating. So our bonus this week is going to be on co-housing communities. That is going to be for our patrons only. If you want to check that out, then you can become a patron. Also, our Instagram question for the week is, have you ever ended cohabitation with a partner while still maintaining an intimate relationship? And how did that go? I can't wait to hear how many of you out there have done that and how it went, hopefully. Hopefully great. Hopefully you're thriving and loving it. So the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash Multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Dedeker Winston, and me, Emily Matlack. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvaneta. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Schenewerk and Carson Collins. The researcher for this episode was Dr. Kiana Nurse. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com.
4: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?